Bankless Nation, I'm joined by two people who are paying attention to the world of credentials. We have uh, Vitalik Buterin, founder of Bitcoin Magazine, Global Citizen, and record holder for the highest number of unmerged and ignored EIPs. Vitalik has recently been an advocate for soulbound NFTs, which are NFTs that cannot be transferred, which offer alternative use cases than the NFTs you're probably familiar with. Vitalik, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for the lovely introduction, David. It's uh, great to be here. Oh, cheers. And also we have Evan McMullen, founder of Disco XYZ and core community member at the Boys Club. Evan is working on the world of verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers. She's a devoted advocate of privacy and consent and which she believes are the key ingredients to producing an off-chain decentralized identity system which preserves user sovereignty. Evan, welcome back to the show as well. Thank you so much for having me, David. Let's get this party started. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so a little context for the show. I met Evan during my crypto travels and it became immediately obvious to me that she's an aficionado of data primitives, tokens, NFTs, on-chain and off-chain, and decentralized identifiers and VCs. Learning about like these off-chain primitives, DIDs and VCs felt like, for me, like learning about crypto for the first time, where like it was super complicated, it, like broke my brain, it was hard to wrap my head around. But as soon as I saw it, uh, I was immediately pilled, which is something that we now call taking the disco pill, which to me, the basic idea of the disco pill is to meme self-sovereign identity into existence, and that requires off-chain data like DIDs and VCs. VCs, not venture capitalists, but verifiable credentials. So because you as a human do not live on chain, you are not your Ethereum address, you can't lose your soul like you can lose your private keys, and you also can't spin up new souls like you can spin up new private keys. So therefore, also your soul cannot be tagged by external graffiti artists, like how your Ethereum address can be airdrop spam. So after talking to Evan, she's like burned it into my brain that on-chain tokens and on-chain data or any Anything on chain really is not sufficient to fully express your human identity. Meanwhile, this human you might know, Vitalik Buterin, releases a blog post titled Soulbound NFTs, which makes the case for NFT tokens that cannot be transferred, which start to behave very much like the verifiable credentials that Evan is so obsessed with, except for one key difference. The data for a Soulbound NFT is fixed to an open public and permissionless ledger. And I'm not used to disagreeing with Vitalik. I'm also not sure if I do disagree. And so this is what we're here to do today is to get down to the bottom of this conversation. When should we be using off-chain credentials and when should we be using a Soulbound NFT? NFT, what are the merits of each, and hopefully we can educate the listener enough to expand their minds about the possibilities that are unlocked once we tackle some of these tough identity questions and then your world that can emerge from that. So guys, that is my opening rant. Vitalik, any comments or perspectives that you want to share before I get into my first questions on that? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, first of all, like, I definitely don't consider myself an uh, on-chain maximalist. Um, I think uh, the thing that I actually advocate is uh, definitely a combination of uh, on-chain and off-chain approaches uh, where you they get different things for the task that they're each best at. And like, I do actually think that I think the yeah, community is uh, including both probably all three of us here and even all of the other people that have been kind of blabbing about the subject on Twitter over the last couple of weeks probably disagree with each other much less than it seems um, just uh, because these concepts don't really to me, describe like fundamentally different categories of technology as they do even like different starting points. And you can go from one and you can go from the other. And I do think in some cases there are like these uh, specific topics um, where it really is important to kind of really drill down and uh, and figure out like which approach makes sense. But, you know, in general, like these aren't two incompatible islands that we're talking about, right? Um, so 
looking forward to figuring this out. Yeah. And I think hopefully as we go and talk about like when off chain, when on chain, the listener also gets an idea of what the hell we're actually talking about and what is unlocked when we talk about credentials in a decentralized fashion. Evan, same question to you. Any comments or perspectives that you want to bring to the table before I jump into my first questions? For sure. I want to echo Vitalik's note. I think that it's a really exciting moment in our ecosystem because we are looking at our own role in Web3 in a different way than we have before. And so we as a community have the opportunity to go meet people where they are in their own journeys, not at you know the first step of our user journey, um, which means that we can reach out to so many communities who haven't yet engaged with Web3 if we can tackle the endpoints that they're already using. So super stoked to you know get into the details today. And I definitely think that the more we consider the tools we have both on and off chain, the more fun superpowers we're going to be able to create in Web3. Yeah. And so before we get into the differences between what happens when these bits of data are on-chain or on-chain, off-chain, I want to actually start exploring for the listeners who are used to when they hear the word NFT, they think of like some JPEG or if they think of some like blob of data or like how people are using our data, they kind of think of Web2. I want to start to define what is the world that we're actually talking about here. So the question is like, what can these things actually do? Because both a soul bound NFT, which is on chain or an off chain verifiable credential, they both attest to something. And so to get the right image in the listeners heads, I want to talk about like, what are the utilities of these things? What use cases do these things unlock and what can we really do with these things? And so Vitalik, I want to get your perspective on like, what is the use case that gets unlocked with these attestations, whether it's on chain or off chain? Uh, so uh, I think uh, the direction that I've been coming at this is uh, basically trying to take the use cases of blockchains beyond finance and also to try to use some of those ideas to fix some of the problems that we've noticed in uh, blockchain applications. So like blockchain governance is a big example that I've talked about, but uh, also other applications as well, right? So like I've... Uh, talked uh, many times, um, you know, in all of uh, my various places on this podcast, um, just for example, about how I really dislike coin voting governance and coin voting governments can easily turn into something, um, you know, very plutocratic and uh, non-representative. So I've been you know, faced with this problem of, uh, well, if you don't like coin voting governance, then what else can you use as like the unit of determining like, you know, who can participate in governing and who can't, right? I talk a lot to optimism people, uh, for example, and I've been a big fan of their of approach with uh, having both a token house and a citizen house. But then if you want to have a citizen house, then, you know, you have to have some concept of, like, you know, representing who is a citizen, right? So, you know, you need to have some way of... Uh, representing what properties does uh, this uh, person actually have? Um, you know, has he actually participated in the optimism ecosystem? Have they participated in the uh, Ethereum ecosystem? You, know, you might want to try and see, like, is there some evidence that this person has some knowledge that could be relevant to the governance process? How do we even know these things are five different people instead of five accounts that are owned by one person? And if um, you want to have applications that use that information, then you have to formally represent that information somehow, right? The Ethereum ecosystem already is starting to have more and more of these ways of like formally representing stuff, right? So there's uh, the proof of humanity protocol, there's uh, the Pope protocol, um, you know, if uh, anyone's gone to an Ethereum event, um, you know, chances are you've uh, seen you know, Patricio uh, Voltzalt or at least uh, once, uh, you know, giving you one of those lovely Popes. You know, there is, to me, really uh, a lot of good that can happen if you unlock the ability to do those kinds of things and uh but 
the challenge is like, how do we actually create a yeah, technology stack for doing that sort of thing that's um, actually sustainable? And I think there's a lot of uh, use cases uh, that have to do with like Ethereum DAOs and uh, airdrops and uh, things like that, but also you know, eventually new applications as well. So just to rephrase that to make sure me and the, the listeners are tracking, the current state of like DAO governance is governance by capital, right? Token vote. That has some amount of utility in terms of governance. There are some instances where like governance by capital is what you want, but is by and large probably the minority of the total expression of governance possibilities. And so what you're focused on with this attestations is there are alternative ways to identify who should have governance powers over a system that has not to do with the capital of the system and it instead is other things. And like you said, the Optimism's uh, Citizen House is a portion of the governance over the Optimism ecosystem that is explicitly not the capital, not the token, but is instead based off of the merits, perhaps. Could you also illustrate just like, if it's not capital, what else is it? Is it turned into a meritocracy or what are the other alternatives that are unlocked if we are not having a capital governance system? Yeah, I mean, first, I should also add that governance here is kind of just the first motivating app, right? I do think that there's uh, a lot of other apps as well. And, um, you know, the Soulbound paper with uh, Pooja and Glenn, um, you know, we talk about like loans, um, you know, potentially kind of clubs and memberships and like all of these use cases. But, you know, governance is just one where there's already this kind of big existing demand. Um, so just a couple of fairly simple examples. I mean, one is just proof of humanity. So, you know, you could do some quadratic thing where if you have N tokens, then instead of N units of uh, governance power, you have square root of N units of governance power. That still is a little bit token-based. And so you get the benefit of being able to distinguish between someone who cares about optimism versus someone who doesn't care about optimism. But at the same time, you know, the square root function kind of drops off after a while. And so, you know, you don't have kind of full-on plutocracy, right? That's just um, one simple example. Another example is that... Uh, one of the things that I think we could do a lot more with is uh, airdrops where the airdropping is done in a you know, more intelligent way, right? So the airdrops that we have today, like a lot of them, they get VC farmed. Even if they don't get VC farmed, a lot of people claim them and then just sell them immediately. The thing that would be more interesting to see is like airdrops that try to actually filter for people who like actually care about a project who actually really participated in it and maybe even people who like learned more about the project or even kind of participated in that project in some micro way right or if we wanted to be like any remotely easy for people to do that sort of thing then like being able to formally represent um you know this person did this thing this person uh, kind of used this up this project for this amount of time participated in this event um, and uh, that sort of thing would actually make it much easier to do that sort of stuff, right? That way, you know, we can have airdrops to like actually target both, um, you know, people who would actually hold the coin instead of just uh, selling it immediately and like actually continue to be productive contributors to that project's community. Evan, feel free to build on what Vitalik was saying here, but we all know in the crypto world, the state of crypto is not yet what we want it to be in the future. So there's many, many things to unlock in order to get to that future. So attestations and credentials being one of those things, what can we unlock and what is left to unlock in DeFi, crypto, and all of these systems that we're building when we have like a robust identity system that Vitalik is referencing? So right now, without a robust 
reputation system, a robust identity system. The only thing that I know about you and I know your Ethereum address is how much money you have and what kinds of financial transactions you've been participating in, what kinds of assets you've purchased or been gifted, stolen, been airdropped. And so we can't coordinate, as Vitalik was noting, very interesting coordination games. It's you know fairly plutocratic when we're based on token holdings alone. And so being able to describe the qualitative traits that we have as individuals, our non-financial contributions to our communities, things like our achievements, our capabilities, our friendships, relationships, our memberships in secret societies, all of these traits describe us as humans and deserve the ability to interact with our smart contracts, as well as being prepared to interact with folks from any ecosystem, not just Ethereum. And so the externalities that we can start to enjoy if we take hold of off-chain data for these purposes, so that we can maintain our privacy, our autonomy, our integrity without having to experience data leakage around what happens when someone sends you a token. So the macro externality of sending a token on a blockchain from one party to another is, I mean, basically it's that Satoshi did it once and set forth the world we know as Web3, which is how we got to now which is a very exciting moment you know, for us. As far as I understand from this conversation so far, Vitalik and I agree that identity is an essential primitive for Web3. And our community, as we have discussed, is paying attention to identity in a way that they haven't before, whether through trauma or through faith. So we have an opportunity to answer the big questions working together. You know, How do we direct our YOLO energy in a sustainable and regen way? How can we put consent above contracts and people over protocols to align on our common values? values and define our identity architecture for Web3. You know, the public conversation that we're in right now has jumped into solutions, and it's the first time that a lot of crypto Twitter is talking about identity, which is super awesome. But we have this moment to amplify our shared energy into a very intentional direction. Vitalik, you provided a wonderful conjecture that can help us come together as a community to optimize for our shared experience as people. You know, we have an opportunity to make these trade-offs that we have to make between consent and availability with a shared allegiance to the human beings that we serve. As Chelsea Manning told me recently, data scientists are ethicists. And so we have this opportunity to depoliticize our data structures together, which is why I'm so excited that we're here today. Vitalik, any comments on that before I go to my next question? Um, no, I mean, I think uh, you know, those are all very uh, wonderful and amazing goals and I support them. Cool. Evan, I think you see a fork in the road with how we can do identity and like one ends up in a better world and one ends up in a worse world. There's a famous tweet that you and I talked about from our friend Cooper Turley, where he said, NFTs are the truest form of our identity or our personality or something like that. Can you illustrate this fork in the road that you see with regards to like NFTs as identity or on-chain data as identity versus off-chain identity? For sure. To engage Coop's tweet, right? You know, Cooper's vibes have launched a thousand communities and his Web3 wallets, like his wardrobe, are a fairly thoughtful reflection of his taste and his preferences, his purchases. You know, NFTs are an authentic reflection of someone's interest and ability to obtain public digital items. So Cooper is not a music NFT as much as he would like to be. He is obviously too tall for that. Uh, Cooper is not a pair of designer sneakers. Cooper's collection of objects, both digital and physical, reflect his taste, which is part of his identity, but is not the whole thing, right? Cooper's identity is also being an alum of the University of Denver, a resident of Los Angeles, a co-founder of FireEyes DAO, a 
Chad of Chad Team Six, an Elenium super fan, a decent slackliner, a connoisseur of acai bowls, and fandom, employment, academic achievements, personal achievements are all really beautiful use cases for verifiable credentials. Cooper is also the life of the party for those who know him and a tornado of memories, emotions, laughter, bull markets, bear markets, late nights, old friends, and very intense eye contact. <laughs> he is a human being, a soul. <laughs> you know and, a lot about Cooper. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, you know, he's a human being. He's a soul and identity that can reflect so much more than what's inside of his wallet, you know, what his financial resources are. And he cannot be contained in a singular address. His community influence, you know, ripples through the metaverse beyond the Ethereum ecosystem. And that's why Coop needs a data backpack, a decentralized identifier with a rich set of verifiable credentials or off-chain private data that he can choose to share when he wants so that he can carry his multifaceted identity in a form that can be understood by his friends who use email or Bitcoin, Solana, EVM, and even websites because his squad contains multitudes. So, you know, if Coop is the sum of his experiences, ideas, and relationships, some are going to be more persistent than others over time because he's a changing and evolving organic being. So he needs personal data that's going to be similarly flexible. But in some sense, Cooper is right. In Web3, where we primarily express ourselves today, publicly and on-chain, NFTs do have the most personality of any readily available token. So I'm really excited to build upon these wallets full of financial data and give us all a new accessory privacy-preserving, self-owned data backpacks so we can carry around the rest of our non-financial data that makes us us. And so Cooper can join the party anywhere, no matter what protocol sits underneath. Right. So Evan was illuminating the world of what happens when you have parts of your identity that really can't be expressed by an on-chain NFT. But Vitalik, I want to turn the question to you is, what utility do we have by having some bit of data embedded into an NFT and also not being able to transfer that NFT. So what is the point of putting something on the blockchain if that thing cannot be transferred to another address? So like, what does that non-transferability unlock and how does that help with this whole like Web3 credentialism? Um, sure. And so I think there's two ways to answer that question, right? One is why could a uh, on-chain non-transferable thing be better than an on-chain transferable thing? And the second is why could an on-chain non-transferable thing be better than an off-chain non-transferable thing? To answer the yeah, first question, like basically, if you have on-chain transferable things, right, then on-chain transferable things are going to like basically just uh, get transferred to the highest bidder, right? So the word soulbound uh, that um, I used in my blog post um, and uh, in that paper, right, it comes from uh, World of Warcraft where you know, there was this uh, type of item uh, in the game called a soulbound item where basically once you pick it up, you can't transfer it to another player, you can't trade it, you can't auction it, right? And I've always thought that that's a very good mechanism uh, because if that mechanism did not exist, then like basically everything would just be sold. And so if you wanted to like get all of the best stuff, all you would just have to do is like, um, you know, go off into the forest and kill boars for like six months in a row without ever going to sleep. And uh, you just uh, be able to get all of the same stuff anyone else has without actually doing anything challenging. Right. Um, you know, imagine if like you could contact the guy who is on Wikipedia as being the most successful uh, mountain climber in the world and ask him like, hey, if I give you $100,000, can I just like replace your name with mine and everyone will recognize me as that, right? Like basically once uh, those kinds of things become possible, the whole concept uh, just kind of starts to lose meaning. So that's why I think 
credentials have to be non-transferable if we want uh, credentials to kind of actually represent properties of a person. And then also, I think there is this kind of anti-plutocratic governance arguments, right? Of like, you also want to prevent like one hedge fund from just, um, you know, gathering up uh, thousands of uh, these things and just, uh, you know, making these really huge uh, kind of votes with one click. You know, like the sort of stuff that even happens in social media today all the time. Uh, this just reminds me, I think there was this one moment a few years ago where I think it might have been Rick Falkfinger or someone else. So, like he just made this tweet pointing out that like, hey, um, you know, Twitter is like actually totally vulnerable to basically commercial attacks. I mean, then a few minutes later, it got 5,000 likes. That was, uh, you know, that sort of stuff happens, right? And like, we want to make it harder for that stuff to happen. That's the first question. The second question for why chains are useful. I think uh, there is a couple of different places where chains are useful. So the first place where chains can be useful, I think, is account management, right? And the problem that I think uh, you might call key revocation, you know, key recovery, like just generally like making cryptographic keys not count anymore in case you want to replace them or you're worried that one of them got lost or stolen. Uh, so the basic problem is that like if you don't have something that can hold some kind of state, then if I have a key and I tell people, hey, you know, here's my public key. If I sign things with this key, then they come from me. Then I uh, have no way to kind of repudiate that. Like I can't go and say, well, no, 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 that's not me anymore. Because, well, what happens if I do send a message to repudiate, but then five years later, someone manages to hack that key and then they go out to the internet and they say, oh, no, 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 that repudiation message, that was a hacker. I'm still the real Vitalik. So... What blockchains do is they do kind of keep track of time. And as I'm sure you remember many times, I've talked many times about social recovery wallets. And, um, you know, in this, the yes, Soulbound paper, we also talk about community recovery. And so having on-chain accounts that can actually, you know, have smart contracts, have the functionality for doing key changes, doing key recoveries, um, and uh, those kinds of things, like... You need some infrastructure to do that sort of thing to have a yeah, good identity layer, right? So that's the first point. And then the other really big one is uh, negative reputation. So I think uh, the simplest kind of tame use case for negative reputation that I think is uh, pretty compelling is uh, if you want to take out loans, right? If you want to take out a loan, then one thing you might want to be able to do is prove that you haven't taken out um, any other loans or prove that you haven't taken out more than a certain number of other loans, right? Because if you don't have that and you just say, hey, look, I'm reputable enough to take out $100,000, and then you go and just do that with um, you know, 20,000 lenders in parallel, uh, then you could just you know run off with $200 million. But if, uh, on the other hand, taking out a loan gives you a negative reputation token and uh, well, I mean, I shouldn't say negative, right? Because taking out a loan isn't bad, but it's like a reputation token that you can't hide even if you wanted to, then that actually empowers you because it lets you prove the absence of those tokens or prove that you have less than a certain number of those tokens in order to show that like you haven't actually taken out many loans yet. And so it's still okay to give you another one. So if we want to like really unlock kind of the full potential of these things for the economy, social media, better forms of communication, then there are going to be places where negative reputation has to apply. And there again, like you have to prove a negative, right? And uh, cryptography can't prove a negative. Blockchains can prove a negative. Blockchains are definitely not the only thing that can prove a negative, but I um, mean, you know, they are one thing. Evan, what about whatever Vitalik just said, piqued your interest? Anything that came to mind there? Yeah, I think it's a... 
a very interesting thing for us to discuss, these negative or unintended externalities that come from sending a token from one party to another. So, you know, Vitalik, you've mentioned some of the critical needs that we have in an identity system, the ability to rotate keys, the ability to issue non-transferable traits, the ability to have resolvable public key infrastructure so we can tell whose keys are who. And it's so wonderful that you've highlighted these things because these are things that decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials can already do today. In talking about the sort of externalities, if Vitalik sends a token to my wallet, he's saying something about me that is public to everyone on earth and in space forever. Uh, if he sends me ETH, which I hope he does, he's making a financial statement. But if he sends me a soulbound token saying Evan's a total Chad, he's saying something much more directed and specific about me. So if this token has some data about me in clear text, then we have the externality that apps and people will be able to read it and access it easily forever. So everyone can see that Vitalik has made a statement about me if we assume that everyone knows whose keys are whose. So we know that the issuer, Vitalik, Vitalik has said something about me, Evan, the subject. So now all of ETH knows that Vitalik and I are talking. So we've started some really fun rumors. But if that token has encrypted data, David can know that Vitalik has said something about me, but not exactly what he said. So the rumors that Evan and Vitalik are talking swirl faster, and we're relying on encryption, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a time-based privacy method. So it's only a matter of time until that data becomes public, whether in my lifetime or the next. Also, Vitalik did not secure permission, my consent, to send me a token. Token, uh, which is why someone was able to send him billions of dollars of Shiba token. And I'm sure that Vitalik would send me something really nice. But if it's a mean or unwanted token, normally I'd be able to burn it or send it away, although that's going to cost me some gas. But as I understand them at this point, allowing for consent in the soulbound token paradigm is a norm proposed by teams like Sysmo, but it's an unenforceable one from a technical perspective. It requires an additional reputational system around it. Um, there's nothing to stop anyone from not gaining consent before issuing you a soulbound token, as with any other kind of token, even if it's possible to secure consent first. So I think, you know, if gaining consent is seen as inconvenient, it's going to be routed around. So this token is only going to be accessible and relevant to users in the EVM verse. So it might require a bridge or cost some additional complexity if I want to leverage my token from Vitalik in my adventures in Bitcoin or email or Solana. So if it were a verifiable credential, it would be immediately readable by more than 90 different sets of keys. So I wouldn't have to translate it just to provide a little bit of comparison for the benefits and drawbacks in different use cases. So let's say instead of getting a token from Vitalik, I get a token from Shifi, which is an educational initiative and community aimed at onboarding more women into the new financial economy. So then everyone knows that I likely identify as a woman. The assurance would increase significantly if I received a diploma, soulbound token from Smith or Wellesley College, and a membership token from Boys Club, Shif256, Metagamma Delta. However, when we talk about loans, I've got all these cool tokens now, women are less likely to be approved for loans. And when they are, they are more likely to be offered costly rates. And I'm sure you guys know only, you know, 2.8% of VC funding goes to female entrepreneurs. So my chances of getting investment might take a hit based on revealing this facet of my identity, depending upon the context. Personally, I struggle to see how publicizing my gender is going to avoid negative consequences on chain that already happened today when people see me as a woman. But, you know, what about other traits? So if I have a diploma token from, or a token at all from Bennett College, there's a high likelihood that I'm a black woman. So in real life, black women earn 63 cents on the dollar compared to white men. 
If I have a token representing my membership in a local religious organization, such as my mosque, you might discern that I'm likely a Muslim. And in real life, Muslim women are 65% less likely to be hired for a job than Christian women. So you can imagine that even receiving a minimal token from a certain address can leak some information that unintentionally affects your experiences immediately. Public tokens from refugee agencies can signal you as a persecuted ethnic minority. Public tokens from adult content sites can signal you as an entertainer. Public tokens from law enforcement can signal your criminal record. So I think, you know, in this opportunity, in this moment, self-ownership and positive reputation systems can take us incredibly far first without these unintended consequences. And, you know, Helen Nissenbaum's work on contextual integrity highlights these ways that public data can be used out of context and lead to these kinds of unintended consequences. But the permanence of our public chains where we send these tokens, or Vitalik has sent me this awesome token that we're talking about, we can unintentionally diminish freedom for disenfranchised communities by publicizing the very traits used to discriminate against them right now. So to avoid this very real, immediate, concrete consequence, we can explore solutions anchored first to a shared vision for human identity before we anchor it to a chain. You know, once something is public, there is little going back. So we've got to get it right the first time for all time. And I think this moment is perfect for us to slow down as a community before we write in pen or perhaps even more permanently on chain. So Evan, to articulate, I think what you just said, there's this potential of like a, you know, a very easy to identify use case for like what Vitalik was talking about with like a loan token, right? Where you can tag this address and say, hey, this address has an outstanding loan, which is good information for other loan originators because that is relevant information to them. And so in that one particular instance of a siloed use case, I think that we can all agree that that's probably pretty useful. But I think what you're saying is when we have many, many, many instances of many use cases, we start to have interactions on these soulbound NFTs, where if an Ethereum address has these four soulbound NFTs, we can start to infer things about that person that they did not willingly give up. Is that a good summary of what you were talking about? Definitely. Yeah, I think, you know, correlation is one of the risks with making data public. Mm -hmm. And so that's why one of the sort of seven laws of identity that were put forth in 2005 by Kim Cameron, one of those seven laws is minimal disclosure. So your mm -hmm. data on a need-to-know basis is one of the pillars that help us build identity systems that minimize risk and harm to human beings. And so Vitalik, is there a way where we can have soul-bound NFTs and have privacy too? Can we have our authority over our own disclosures and also still have soulbound NFTs? Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the uh, encryption is definitely like a very important first place to start. And like, I would definitely totally not support a system that doesn't have like at least that available as an option. But um, you know, I think you totally can go much further, right? Um, so like, you know, with ZK Snarks, for example, you could make a yeah, system where you're encrypting not just the content of the soulbound token, but also, you know, the sender and the recipient. Right. You know, imagine we're doing this all in a layer two and transaction fees are cheap and the gas is, um, you know, paid through Tornado or through, you know, some relay or whatever. Then the stuff that goes um, on chain is just a record. Record is, um, you know, encrypted to the destination uh, public key. And if you want to do a proof of uh, that you have some particular bit of reputation, then uh, you can just do a, a zero knowledge proof that says, hey, you know, here is the decryption of one thing and that one thing is sitting on a chain. If you want to have a proof that says, I have never received something of this type, then you can make a ZK Stark that just walks over the entire set of records. And then um, 
you know, basically show that if you decrypt everything in that set, then like none of those are going to be a yeah record of this type, right? And, you know, possibly you can make a kind of privacy efficiency trade-off somewhere, kind of split it into a hundred buckets if you only want to decrypt 1% of everything. Uh, but, you know, you can like really reduce um, a lot of uh, information there. Now, once uh, you have that, um, then basically, yeah, you know, what, what you're left with is just as just a bunch of uh, records containing encrypted data. And the thing that is leaked is the fact that someone said something about someone at uh, some particular time. Um, and so, um, you know, definitely you'll be able to do analysis and figure out like, you know, how many North American and uh, Latin American people are using it versus how many Asian people. Um, and, uh, you know, to a mathematician, that's a, a, a pretty significant data leak, but it does get pretty low already. I do think that the point about... Uh, encryption, having a risk of eventually breaking, I think uh, it is something that's fair. Uh, though, on the other hand, I would also say that like this gets to the point where like, you know, if you don't make some information available, then like, the, you know, that starts really going against uh, some of the positive use cases as well, right? Like at some point, um, you know, like you have to kind of pass some bar of capability. And if you don't pass that bar of capability, people will just create centralized providers that do, right? So, like, I do think that it is possible to kind of reduce the privacy issues a lot, um, especially once like broken encryption comes into your model. Like, you know, you definitely can't do it to 100%, though, you know, 10-year-old information getting revealed is uh, less bad than zero-year-old information getting revealed and still only happens occasionally and so forth. And like, there's definitely kind of like a place to trade off on the boundary. Um, and so I, like, I do think that there is a case that uh, if there is some NFT where like, the contents are sensitive, then, you know, you might even want to like put a hash of it on chain. And like the thing, okay, well, actually, no, here's what you do. You uh, put the recipient on chain and you would just send the contents of the yeah, NFT to the recipient and then you put the hash on chain, right? So the recipient holds the data off chain, but then if the recipient wants to kind of walk over the entire data and prove it, then like they can still you know, make a proof using the information that they have personally. And then if they want to prove that a record isn't theirs, they just so show that like, look, I'm, you know, the ID in this particular position is different, right? So there are lots of technical tricks that you can do, but, you know, I do sympathize with the idea that like you can't to like bring the issues down to exactly zero. Um, and I think like, you know, there is some trade-off at the end, um, though at the same time, I'm, you know, as I'm sure Justin told you, never underestimate the, the power of cryptography to do quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I guess at some point it does, um, you know, get into kind of just being application specific. I want to ask a question, and this is a little bit beyond my technical expertise to really understand, but if we have this world of like soulbound NFTs, and that's leaking all of this data that we don't want leaked, but we have the solutions to stop those leaks from being leaked with uh, a combination of encryption and ZK proofs, mm -hmm. if we plug up all the holes of the leaking of the data with the ZK proofs and encryption, do we actually kind of ultimately just work back down to the same properties of off-chain credentials in the first place? I mean, I th the key property that we keep, right, is this, I think, like, one, this ability to prove negatives, mm -hmm. and which I do think is uh, important. Um, I think uh, just to kind of expand on why I think like proving negatives is important, like, I think... Uh, it is definitely true that there are like things that people have um, where if they get revealed, then uh, th those properties can get used against them. And I do think that like there is a really big and important role for privacy to play in uh, kind of fighting against that. And I think even you know the crypto space itself is like a really good example of that, right? And uh, like you know lately we've been having more and more of these um, you know anons on Twitter, um, and they can just get kind of you know respected for who they are as um, as anons, and um, you know we don't even. 
necessarily needs to know what their faces look like and unless and until they show them, right? And I think that's, uh, you know, like people having the option to do that is beautiful. But at the same time, I think kind of the two caveats I would give there is uh, one, um, that there is a way in which, uh, like proving negatives can be kind of even more egalitarian and um, empowering than having to prove positives in some cases. And like one particular example of this, right, is uh, in the real world, like in the non-crypto world, there are applications where like one side needs to know that the other side is at least reasonably trustworthy. And one thing that they might do is like prove that the other side doesn't have a criminal record, right? And that's nice because it's like a very simple test that someone is like, at least not in, you know, the bottom kind of a few percent of trustworthiness, kind of probably. Um, and it's something that like most people have by default, right? Now, if we did not have the ability to prove the absence of a criminal record, then the thing that people would probably be forced to do instead is they would be forced to like look, like basically say you have to provide positive evidence of good character. And once you have to find positive evidence of good character, then like that's going to be something that's harder for people to find, right? Like some person who had just has some stall on the street where, you know, she, uh, she's been selling bananas for a dollar for 25 years, like, um, you know, never did anything wrong trustworthy, but just uh, because, um, you know, she's not part of the system, she might not even have that evidence of uh, good character, right? So I think like that's one important sense in which kind of like lack of negatives can be a more egalitarian thing than uh, presence of positives. And also presence of like, there are a lot of cases even today where uh, presence of positives is uh, something that can be used to exclude, right? Even a simple one is like just uh, like requiring proof of citizenships, right? Like, uh, you know, a, a developed country passport, something that 86% of people in the world don't have. Um, and, uh, you know, I think crypto really tries and cares about being global. Um, and uh, that's uh, even if you create a system that just allows checking that, then you're already allowing for the possibility of excluding people on that basis. Right. Uh, so I think uh, my general kind of view on this is um, that I don't think you really can kind of like finally you know, kind of target properties just by, yeah, you know, making it possible to prove positives and not possible to approve negatives. Like to what extent a system is going to have like the, the good outcomes and not going to have the bad outcomes is going to be based on these kind of much more kind of finely grained and uh, detailed economic properties. And I think, uh, you know, in probably both kinds of systems, there's like a utopia way to do it and a dystopia way to do it. Mm -hmm. Evan, no question, but what thoughts have come to mind? Well, Vitalik, I'm really glad that you brought up inclusion because, you know, as much as we would like for it to be the case, right, Ethereum does not provide the only API of data about people on the planet. And so if we want to be able to make utterances that are relevant to people who use websites and email addresses and Solana and Bitcoin, we are going to need tools that allow us to communicate with the keys that they already have, mm. as opposed to requiring the exclusionary need for them to hold the keys that we prefer to interact with our chosen system. Mm. That said, I also think that you know there's a prioritization opportunity for us here. Which problems are most urgent mm. for us to pursue, right? Which need the most love right now? Mm. And so I think that there is a 
robust set of these opportunities where we might explore positive reputation in terms of enabling better governance, as you were suggesting, right? For every community of well-meaning members, there's one Brantley. Mm -hmm. And so I think to the extent that we might think about, you know, how reputation positively can impact the systems that we have today to unblock us immediately, I think that's a really great place for us to start focusing our effort while we studiously and collaboratively define, you know, what is the identity system that's going to work for everybody. Hmm. So I, I mentioned earlier, you know, Kim Cameron's laws of identity that set forth the sort of industry standard framework for identity systems that minimize risk and harm to people. And I think there are a few of these things that I want to pull out that I think are relevant for us to discuss here today. I think, you know, user control and consent, as I mentioned earlier, is a core pillar, right? Just like how World of Warcraft loot screens, you know, allow players to consent to put something in their inventory, even if it's non-transferable afterwards. In these systems that are intended to minimize risk and harm to people, users should consent to those data interactions. And that may mean also consenting to participate in a system that involves negative reputation, right? We participate in the society. Therefore, we are subject to certain facets of our state. Pluralism of operators and technologies is, you know, sort of a sort of agreed upon element of a strong foundation for a global identity system that does not bring harm. So we avoid a monolithic solution. And, you know, minimal disclosures we talked about before. So you can share data with a minimum number of parties required. It's on a need-to-know basis. And this is kind of at odds with the 24-7 data availability that we've come to get used to in Web 2, where apps have 24-7 access to our information. And so I think that, you know, this is a really wonderful opportunity, as I mentioned, for us to explore, like, what are the relative merits of these tools based on the needs that we have as humans? And how do we find that spectrum of use cases? Vitalik, as you suggested earlier, where some are more optimal than others, and we have a pretty good understanding of what we think those first externalities are going to be. Vitalik, any thoughts? I mean, first of all, you know, I do, I, I mean, I definitely totally sympathize with the uh, goal of technology neutrality. Like I think, uh, you know, if someone um, hates or just does not want to use Ethereum or then, uh, you know, they yeah, should not be forced to use it in order to be part of, um, you know, the, you know, identity web of the future. Um, I think, uh, you know, they should totally be able to be, uh, you know, use Solana. Um, and, um, you know, if uh, you're uh, David Girard, then you should totally be free to kind of not bother with a blockchain at all and just, um, you know, have your open ID and let Google or Facebook run your identity. Um, you know, I think if someone wants to do that, that's fine too. I do think that it is possible to create standards that cover that. Like, I know that, like, for example, Juan from uh, Filecoin, right? Like, he is, uh, I mean, in IPFS, like, there's been, there's a lot of work that's been done and, you know, being able to kind of support multiple types of hash functions and, like, support multiple algorithms for pretty much everything um, and creating kind of these data standards that can actually do that. Um, and I think it should, you know, totally be possible. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not deep enough in the verifiable credentials in a community to know maybe this already has been done, um, to, but, um, you know, to make it so that, like, you know, you can have an Ethereum account that um, interfaces uh, with the system or a Solana account um, or um, a yeah, yes. Google Open Vitalik, ID. Yes, Vitalik, you can. We can. Okay. We can, sorry to jump in. We can do that. We can do that. We can use mm. a verifiable credential to bi-directionally bind together mm. our Ethereum address with our Bitcoin address, with our Solana address. I can send a credential signed by my Ethereum address to someone else's address that is a Bitcoin address or mm. a Solana address, and we can be on the same page already. So I would mm. love to explore this more with you. Okay. Actually, like, so one kind of detailed question there. Um, Let's say like I want my, uh, I mean, okay, let's uh, 
I'll jump to another team just for fun. Um, let's say I'm a Solana Maxi and I want my Solana address to be my root, right? Um, so, I mean, does the system give the possibility for me to say the Solana address is my root um, and the Solana address like is the thing that has the right to kind of reset my Ethereum address and my Bitcoin address and the address um, and the public key that I use to send all the other attestations? So we are currently working on that approach, starting with Ethereum keys mm -hmm. at Disco. Um, but okay. our friends Aww. over at Encore and the Solana ecosystem are thinking about what that means for mm -hmm. their world. Um, so we'll keep mm -hmm. you posted on what those discoveries okay. look like. But we mm -hmm. think, you know, it's uh, an exciting opportunity to become your first mm -hmm. personal. You are your own mm -hmm. multisig. You are your personal API. Mm -hmm. And so that means incorporating multiple facets of mm -hmm. your personhood. Yep. So I was trying to keep up with that. And so I think what you guys were talking about with the root conversation is that with these off-chain verifiable credentials, off-chain decentralized identifiers, and like I just spun up my Disco data loot bag yesterday, but does that mean that Evan, like Disco is like opinionated as in like Disco's home is Ethereum, even though it can link to other Ethereum addresses? Is that the conversation that you guys are having? So we are starting in the Ethereum ecosystem because that is where we have the most experience and you know we see the most exciting opportunities, of course. And so as we explore the relationships that people have between different keys, we're going to figure out what does it look like? Is it hierarchical? Right now, based on the decentralized identifier spec, not especially, but you know, identity is an emergent thing. And so I think based on the way that people start to interact, deliberately engaging multiple chains at once or their physical mm -hmm. space with their on-chain activities or even Web2 activities, we'll start to see more of this structure emerge. So at Disco, the very first thing that we're doing is enabling everybody to create decentralized identifiers out of their existing Ethereum addresses so they can get some, uh, so they can use their existing MetaMask keys to sign off-chain data in the form of verifiable credentials that they can write about themselves, they can send to their friends, they can receive from the DAOs in which they are members like Boys Club or Shifi, uh, Thousand Syndicate and Seed Club as well in the future. And so we are starting off with the Ethereum ecosystem because as Vitalik noted earlier, we are hitting a ceiling of fun that we can have together when we're limited to on-chain data. And so Vitalik, can you illustrate or illuminate the importance of trying to have an agnostic technology that like, if somebody wants to have what I think you guys called the root, the root not be Ethereum if Ethereum isn't your main chain of choice. Why is that an important choice for users? Um, I mean, I think, uh, you know, it is looking like we're going to be in a world where different users are kind of primarily homed on one particular chain. And I think, uh, you know, that's totally fine. Um, and uh, in some cases, the chains that people use might even end up changing. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, yeah, you know, in general, like, if you have a like a standard of this type that ends up kind of enshrining one particular chain, then like that both, um, I mean, obviously it entrenches that standard further in that chain's ecosystem, but it does also kind of limit the social scalability of it, which, um, you know, I think is uh, from that point of view, something that's totally fair. Evan, is this technology that you're building at Disco, is this like agnostic from even like necessarily the cryptocurrency world? I know it, it will always use cryptography, but like, is this something that like the Web2 world can leverage? Absolutely, yes. So in the same way that we can create a decentralized identifier out of our Ethereum address, we could also create one out of a PGP key, an email address, a website. And so our ability to show up with the various facets that make us us and connect them together is one thing, right? Which names are we using for ourselves? Where do they come from? Mm -hmm. But our ability to collect metadata around all those different names, off-chain, non-financial mm -hmm. metadata in the form of credentials describing any of those addresses, this natively has very little to do with financial interactions. The security of data in this particular form is secured by cryptography, 
as you note. And so though off-chain credentials can support the integrity and transparency and complexity of financial interactions, there is nothing inherently financial about them. So when I send a verifiable credential to you, I don't pay any fees or anything, but because it's a piece of data, it's got to be stored somewhere. Um, so we're sort of changing the process of where cost falls in that communication. So I have two last questions uh, before I run out of them. And so if there was any last subjects floating around in your respective brains, do bring them up. But my last question is about like a superset versus a subset of these different like form factors. And what I mean by that is, Vitalik, correct me if I'm wrong, but like this isn't like soulbound NFTs versus off-chain identifiers. My understanding for this is that like a soulbound NFT is like a smaller subset of just like verifiable credentials and decentralized identifiers at large, right? Where you you have a verifiable credential. And then if you imbue that into an NFT on an, a blockchain and make that NFT non-transferable, then you get a soulbound NFT. Vitalik, would you agree with that description? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like important to distinguish between like verifiable credentials, the brand's name, uh, kind of, mm -hmm. and the, the kind of specific community that's been uh, working around that brand name for a half a decade, uh, versus, um, you know, the general concept of credentials that are verifiable. Mm. So, you know, soulbound NFTs are credentials that are verifiable, right. but soulbound NFT is also a brand name, right? Because soulbound NFT is, uh, by some definitions, are not even tokens. So, like, I think you know, once you kind of uh, you know, go beyond the specific kind of categories uh, that um, exist in people's heads and like start thinking about properties. Like, you know, you can totally unlock that entire space in the middle, right? And like, I think, uh, you know, just even to save gas, it does totally make sense in a lot of cases to, you know, make popes be off-chain in a lot of contexts, for example, right? Like, uh, you know, if you have a pope issuer, then like they can save gas by just uh, issuing an entire tree of popes and just uh, sticking the root on chain and then giving every individual uh, participant the Merkle branch, right? And, um, you know, if you trust the pope, if the pope issuer to issue a legitimate pope, then, you know, you're going to trust the pope issuer for data availability anyway, so that's fine, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, so... That already kind of is um, an opportunity to save a whole bunch of gas. Um, and though, so, you know, you do still kind of retain some properties of a blockchain, like, I mean, you've, like, just for example, you retain this kind of hard proof that says that, like, you know, if your Merkle branch has length 10, then you can prove that a maximum of 1,024 of them have been issued, right? And you can only do that sort of thing if you actually have Merkle branches going into a particular route and you have, like, that particular route committed on chain. So, there's definitely is this kind of long spectrum of, uh, you know, how much chaining are you doing uh, and uh, how many more of these extra guarantees that you're getting. And I do think that different use cases are going to want uh, different things along that spectrum, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I think is totally fine. Um, I think uh, another thing that's probably worth stressing is uh, that I think uh, one of the differences between cryptography and uh, social systems is that a, a social system does not survive first contact with reality, right? Like uh, the only way to make social systems that are sane just is going to have to involve like some degree of being iterative and like kind of setting it out there, seeing how people interact with it, um, and then kind of using those experiences as feedback into the next version, right? Like I think uh, we saw a lot of that with uh, Gitcoin, for example, and the Gitcoin grants rounds and, and how they've kind of matured from the, uh, you know, very kind of... Um, early versions uh, that we saw during like rounds one to three um, into the uh, you know very mature community that we see today. And so I think, um, you know, ultimately like the people that uh, probably both can and will kind of make the biggest difference here 
probably are, are not even just uh, going to be people kind of passively thinking about this. It actually will be, um, you know, people who wants to issue specific popes for a particular purpose or people who wants to issue, um, you know, soul-bound airdrops and have particular needs for what kinds of uh, properties that they're trying to filter for or people who wants to, um, you know, let's say make some social media platform that has like some built-in form of uh, ZK negative reputation and like trying to get privacy and accountability at the same time. So I think, uh, you know, the use cases themselves are going to matter a lot. Um, and so I mean, in some ways, I even think that kind of the missing fourth person in this chat might, you know, even be someone from kind of one of these uh, like applications that's actually been using, um, you know, their uh, credentials or, um, or popes or proof of humanity. But, you know, I'm very hopeful that I think, uh, you know, those people are aware of the discussion. They're part of the discussion. And I think uh, we're, we're going to have lots of opportunities to talk and figure it out. Yeah, on the uh, weekly rollout that Ryan and I recorded yesterday, it came out today. For the people that are listening to this this coming Wednesday, it was last Friday, there was a question from the nation that we answered, which is like, what is the big next thing that is coming to the world of crypto? And Ryan and I both independently came up with the same answer, which is more or less the conversation that we're having right now, which is identity. Mm -hmm. And how can we get more expressive identity as a utility inside of the crypto ecosystem? And so I think this conversation, Vitalik, is going to be very much ongoing as it progresses in pure crypto fashion, which is in all directions at once. Evan, any comments or topics you want to bring up before I ask my last question? David, to the point of all directions at once, I think you know, we have this very unique opportunity to bring a ton of camps together that haven't yet been before. We have a way to use our Ethereum addresses to communicate globally, off-chain, private, trustless reputation. And today, five-year-old students are accruing verifiable credentials around their decentralized identifiers as they learn with the Lego Foundation, as well as students at Harvard, which co-founded the Digital Credentials Consortium, which makes it easy for universities to issue verifiable credentials for academic achievements. Mm -hmm. So from, you know, five-year-old to cryptography PhDs at Harvard, we have an incredible community of folks who we can reach out to with this conversation, who we can bring into the fold, mm. who we can onboard to their first MetaMask addresses, and we can invite them to the table as we continue this. So to put this just in really just concrete language, and I know like whether or not a credential should be off-chain and have the data off-chain, or if it should be a soul-bound on-chain NFT, is definitely going to depend on the facts and circumstances of the actual context of uh, whatever we're talking about. But I'll bring up which is like one very simple one, which is like my college degree. So the question is, what is the best like form factor for like a university higher education degree? And so what a degree is, it's a piece of paper that is basically a credential of being proficient in a specific domain of knowledge. So like when Harvard enters the metaverse, what's like the most logical form factor for them to issue credentials? Evan, I'll throw that one to you. So I, I feel like I kind of blew up the lead a little bit there because I, I realized <laughs> I just mentioned Harvard to work with verifiable credentials. But if we were to take a step back, pretend that we don't know that, you know, I think soulbound tokens are not as flexible and well-suited as verifiable credentials specifically for college degrees. So, you know, in addition to adhering to some of those principles we talked around, the laws of identity, user control and consent, awesome with verifiable credentials, same with, you know, pluralism of technologies that can interact with it and minimal disclosure, but verifiable credentials in addition to enabling this privacy and self-custody also allow us to reconcile rich semantic mapping work among, you know, all these kinds of different people in the educational space. So we can establish equivalence from one learning outcome, like one class to another, because I can choose how to share my diploma, additional information like we talked about earlier in the conversation, you know, isn't going to get leaked, such as when it was issued, which might indicate my age. But more importantly, 
the same vehicle, these verifiable credentials can be used for formal claims. So, you know, sensitive formal claims like a transcript, what grades did you get, or less sensitive things like a diploma. And finer grained claims that can be composed into a richer view with all of these together kind of in a, in a presentation, things like your grades on a homework assignment, as well as informal claims like being the best speller in the class. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really important in the educational space when it comes to reducing gatekeeping and improving opportunities for all kinds of students, because we still have basic problems like, you know, you don't get any credit for college education until you finish everything. So verifiable credentials can enable scenarios like reverse transfers, for example, where you can get tangible credit in the form of an associate's degree for courses that you've already completed, which can lead to some real opportunities. And, you know, as I mentioned a little bit ago, students as young as five years old are already earning verifiable credentials hmm. in the Super Skills app from Lego. Hmm. And just this week on Monday, there's an interoperability hackathon from the World Wide Web Consortium with 25 different wallets participating, hmm. which is part of why I think, you know, there's so much enthusiasm in the higher education space. But, you know, as long as the world is larger than Ethereum, then credentials will exist outside and inside Ethereum. And because as far as I understand, soulbound tokens do not have a defined spec yet, we can't commit to what soulbound tokens look like on all chains at this time. Whereas verifiable credentials are already interoperable with more than 90 different kinds of keys, including Ethereum. So we can use our Ethereum keys and lightly enable other existing issuers to deploy some minimally invasive tools and unlock, I think, a majority of use cases, including the educational one here. <laughs> No, the yeah, college uh, degree use case is interesting. Um, there is actually already is a yeah, company based out of Singapore called um, OpenCerts mm. that has been uh, doing kind of blockchain-based uh, certificates on Ethereum for a couple of uh, years now. Um, their approach is this kind of interesting hybrid approach, right, where a degree by itself is uh, basically just a signed message. So it's a yeah, you know verifiable credential, though it doesn't um, you know follow the verifiable credentials TM spec probably. Um, but uh, like if they have to revoke it or if they have to make a correction or if they have to do kind of any one of those kind of prove a negative type things, then it's a yeah, blockchain message. I would say, you know, I, I am aware of their work. I think it's, you know, it's interesting. It's valid. It definitely does not align as strongly with the Verifiable Credentials for Education Working Group from the World Wide Web Consortium that's been around for quite a few years and is working with dozens, I think probably at this point, hundreds of educational institutions. So we have abilities to put these things on and off chain. But if we look to where the energy and the market is in terms of realistic adoption, I think, you know, Verifiable Credentials are doing a really great job of bringing value to these campus communities. Mm -hmm. So Vitalik, if you were Harvard, how would you issue a degree? I mean, I think, uh, you know, just use any of these things. Like, I think it's, uh, I mean, in some ways, like the differences aren't even that large, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, like, if you make one thing, you can just import a cryptographic proof of it into another medium anyway. Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, possibly even just do both, right? Like, uh, what, you know? It's like, why not do both um, and uh, kind of encourage people to build um, applications that can like work with both formats. Mm. So zooming out here, guys, for the last and final question, say we go into the world of the late 20s of crypto and we've solved all of these like problems with getting identity expressed in ways that are have strong assurances and it's just more expressive about who we are as people to go into the world of Web3. What about that world where we have successfully leveraged identity in non-dystopian ways in the world of crypto? How does that make the world better? How does that make you optimistic? Vitalik, I'll start with you. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, one of the big things that we can do is uh, start really making a big dent in kind of some of the plutocracy issues and kind of misalignments uh, just within the cryptocurrency space itself, right? Like it would be amazing to see, um, you know, 
DAOs that aren't just uh, controlled by five wealthy people, and um, you know, ideally have a uh, a mechanism that does a good job of like both, you know, not uh, being financially elitist, but also like actually selecting for uh, like competence and selecting for people who are kind of passionate and actually care about that that particular topic, uh, and. I think that's something that a you know well-designed use of uh, identity and reputation primitives. Um, you know, you could even do it with just proof of humanity and popes, uh, and it could also add something else on top. Uh, should be able to do quite well. And uh, in general, I think um, you know making a crypto space that does things like, for example, you know, if someone new joins it, then you know they should be able to get some quantity of tokens for free. Um, like a you know. A crypto UBI, like it's uh, even just an excellent onboarding tool. You know, there's a, a reason why PayPal got so successful doing the whole, I mean, you know, every user gets $5 when they sign up thing. And then going even beyond the uh, crypto space, I think, uh, you know, there's just so much uh, harm that comes from, uh, in the world from like badly designed ways of uh, trying to kind of filter between trustworthy people and less trustworthy people. And so I think, uh, you know, if we can offer any kind of better alternatives for any of those uh, problems, uh, then, you know, there's just lots of ways that that can make the world a uh, more inclusive place um, and, uh, you know, a yeah, place where um, anyone who has the right skills and the right passion to uh, uh, contribute to a particular place uh, actually is welcome. I'm sure that can be true, you know, across genders, uh, that can be true, uh, you know, across uh, nationalities, you know, across just like different kinds of experiences, like different levels of wealth. And if, uh, you know, we can actually start creating these kind of more fine-grained ways for people to try to uh, like formalize the uh, experiences, kind of traits, um, you know, uh, histories uh, that people have, and um, you know, do it in a way that kind of both respects privacy um, and actually like uh, gives them a uh, you know this kind of very fine grained uh, way of uh, showing um, you know what they've been part of, and also in some cases what they haven't been part of. Um, then I think uh, you know it just opens up this much bigger space that allows us to uh, just to do a lot of great things. Evan, same question to you. What about the world of credentials in Web3 makes you optimistic? Oh, we can finally have some more fun of different flavors, right? In Web3, mm. we can only express our financial beings. And so if we can show up as our whole selves and we can coordinate non-financial activities together, we can start earning privileges and opportunities, unlocking doors with our own behavior. So for example, I'm a huge fan of Boys Noise, who's a DJ. If I listen to a ton of his music at home and I'm able to prove that I'm in the top 1% of listeners when I show up to his concert, then what if I'm able to receive a free drink? What if I can go dance on the stage? What if my continuous attendance at all of his shows in New York for the last 10 years gets me some kind of additional privilege or opportunity to be able to listen to his music early or weigh in on the next collection of rave fig NFTs that he drops? So I think our ability to interact with one another not necessarily in a financial manner upon its face, but rather unlocking privileges with our behavior captured in the shape of tokens in a way that is privacy preserving to us, but can interact with the smart contracts that we know and love. I think that gives me a lot of hope because when you sign up for your first set of keys, you don't actually have to fill that wallet up with money to get started. You can play with all kinds of interactions using a key pair. And of course, many and in, in on-chain are, are incredible and have led to the world that we have now. But if we start playing with the ones that do not require us to have funded wallets to start, we can welcome so many different kinds of communities into our fold together. 
Well, Evan Vitalik, this was a fantastic journey down the world of attestations, credentials, and what happens when we unlock non-financial use cases in the world of Web3. So thank you so much for exploring this conversation with me. And hopefully, I'm pretty sure the listeners did learn a bunch about how much left there is to unlock in the world of not cryptocurrency, Hmm. but cryptography, which is ultimately the reason why we're all here in the first place. So Evan Vitalik, thank you for joining me today. Thank you too. Party on. (laughs) All right. Action items, Bankless Nation. Here's what I want you to do. We talked about things like loans and Harvard degrees, but then Evan finished off with things like listening to your favorite band or you know engaging in art. And so I want you to think about what are the things that make you, you, and how that could be leveraged in the Web3 world in the future, in the creator economy, in the NFT world, and all the beautiful art and cultural expression that could come out of these things when our DAOs, our organizations, our creators can have more verifiable and trustless data about who we are. That is your action item, is to use your imagination. Of course, Risks and disclaimers, we didn't really talk about cryptocurrency. And in fact, this episode was specifically not about cryptocurrency. So while that is true, ETH is still risky, crypto is still risky, DeFi is still risky, but also leaking data is also risky. So be careful about the credentials that you touch in the world of Web3. Mm. You can lose what you put in, but we are headed west. We're on the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 